So it's my pleasure uh, to introduce again Pastor Mark. Pastor Mark is near and dear to us. He's our he's the lead pastor of Radiance Church up in San Francisco. Some of you know Radiance Church because uh, we were essentially birthed out of Radiance Church five years ago. So they um, are our mother church. Uh, pastor Mark, uh, before that, actually was the uh, lead pastor of Kairos Church. He was the founding pastor of Kairos Church, where Ulysses is. Um, pastor Mark is a Barry native, is married to Mira, has two uh, rather grown children now, Jeremiah and Carissa, um, and is a Bay Area native. But it's uh, always a pleasure to have him, and let's welcome him up. Thanks, Pastor Mark. Thank you, John. It's always good to be here. Uh, with you, worshiping with the Renewal family. Always good to get away from San Francisco for an evening, at least. Um, yeah, I've been battling insomnia, and so I came down a day earlier, uh, spent the night in a hotel, and believe it or not, I actually slept through the whole night, so I feel much more refreshed than uh, I usually do, and so, uh, man, Sunnyvale, great place, right? Quiet, peaceful, restful, secure. Love it, love it. Um, you know, it's, uh, it's interesting, um, you know, I was thinking about the message today, like an intro for it, and, uh, you know, I, in commemoration of being here in Sunnyvale, I kind of rocked the outfit, right, that uh, was made famous, right, by the man who built this, right, Steve Jobs, and every time I wear a mock turtleneck, uh, the young guys at church always ask, you're like an Asian Steve Jobs, right, <laughs> and, and, you know, and and, you know, that's when I say, you know what, shut up, right? <laughs> and, and their rebuttal, at least one of the person's rebuttal was, yeah, you know what, you're actually a better, better than Steve Jobs, at least you have some hair, right? And so it's been this interesting dialogue between me and some of the young, young guys at church. And I don't know about what's going on here at Renewal. Um, uh, we've been having a lot of young people uh, come through our, our church over the last six months. I think that's, they're the only ones who actually are forced to come back in. And, um, and, and leading Gen X has been an interesting challenge. And we're going to be talking about the subject of spiritual leadership. And it's obviously something, a subject uh, that is very relevant. Uh, there's a lot of scrutiny uh, on this mat matter because of all the abuse, all the scandal. And you know, for as long as the church has been around, there have always been good leaders, but also bad ones as well. Right? This is nothing new. Right? I think everyone thinks, oh my God, what's happening to the church? This has always been an issue, right? Healthy leadership versus those who abuse their power. Uh, that is historically something that has been part of the dynamics of church life. And due to that simple, undeniable fact, there will always be a need to discern the difference between the two. And today, because Pastor Ulysses asked me to continue the series from Corinthians, we're going to look at a passage that deals and relates directly with how to discern spiritual leadership wisely. And we're going to do so by examining the life of the Apostle Paul. And so 1 Corinthians uh, chapter 4, 14 through 21, if you have your Bibles, let's turn there. It's the word of the Lord. I do not write these things to make you ashamed, but to admonish you as my beloved children. For though you have countless guides in Christ... You do not have many fathers, for I became your father in Christ Jesus through the gospel. I urge you, then be imitators of me. That is why I sent you Timothy, my beloved and faithful child in the Lord, to remind you of my ways in Christ, 
as I teach them everywhere in every church. Some are arrogant as though I were not coming to you, but I will come to you soon if the Lord wills. And I will find out not the talk of these arrogant people, but their power. For the kingdom of God does not consist in talk, but in power. What do you wish? Shall I come with a rod or with love in a spirit of gentleness? Amen. Written just as the Apostle Paul's personality would dictate. And as we look at this passage, we're going to look at three elements of healthy spiritual leadership. First, the right attitude of a spiritual leader. Two, the right aptitude, the skill set that he or she must bring in. And third, the right use of authority. And, uh, you know, again, you know, going back to the young people that are coming into the church recently, this is the first time in my life as a pastor that I am ministering to people who literally could be much. And I know I look pretty young, but I'm not that young, right? And so uh, these young adults that are now coming in, uh, they can actually be my kids. And in fact, one sister told me when I was preaching or after I was preaching that she felt like I was her Asian dad talking to her, right? And preaching at her. And I don't think she intended that as a compliment, or at least I did not receive it in that way. And, you know, as I get older and the church trends younger, I do feel uh, my age. But at the same time, I am very grateful for the fact that I've lasted this long, long enough actually to be considered a spiritual father to our church. And, you know, many years ago, when I began to really understand my calling as a pastor, passages like the one that we just read convicted me of where I needed to get to, the right attitude that I needed to develop as a, a spiritual leader if I was going to serve effectively. And uh, obviously, you know, 25 years ago when I started ministry, I was much younger, uh, but I do remember praying that I would be able to follow the example of Paul, at least in part, that this is the biblical model that has been given to spiritual leadership. And there are some other verses that I've taken into my personal philosophy of ministry uh, was from First Thessalonians, I remember graduating from seminary, writing on this as uh, my philosophy of ministry moving forward. And here Paul says, For you remember, brothers, our labor and toil. We worked night and day that we might not be a burden to any of you while we proclaim to you the gospel of God. For you know how like a father with his children we exhorted each one of you and encouraged you and charged you to walk in a manner worthy of God who calls you into his own kingdom and, and glory. And uh, from there, I've come to believe that leaders should not be a burden to their congregations financially, if at all possible, because that would be a stumbling block to people. And, and there is many accusations of leaders who do really ungodly things for financial gain and using the name of God for it. And you know, think of how much that has ruined the reputation of the church. And so this is why in the first couple of years as we started Radiance, where, where we did not know uh, the financial makeup of the church, how this was going to survive, I ended up driving a, a not Lyft, it was called Sidecar back then. You guys remember Sidecar? Probably not, right? They went out of business. Uh, but it was like a Lyft comp competitor, but they lost. And so I, I drove uh, Sidecar car for about a month 
And then I got a ticket, actually, and I realized all the thing, all the money that I earned for a month was gone in just that one ticket. But you know, I picked up you know odd and odd ends jobs in here, here and there. Mira worked part time as well at the Gap, and uh, we lived near Hunter's Point, right? Albeit in a gated community, all right. I mean, we needed some safety, but we lived in one of the most dangerous parts of the city. And more than just being good financial stewards, uh, I believe and was convicted. These are the type of sacrifices that a father makes for the family that he loves, right? That this is the example that I wanted to show and to share. And, you know, if there's one thing that I've learned from Paul's school of ministry is that being a spiritual father to a church is much harder than being a guide or a teacher. And I think that's one area that I've grown the most uh, during my 10 years here in the Bay Area as I've moved from my 40s into my 50s. And I am a, a teacher, I think, in terms of my spiritual gifting. But in my heart, I know that there is a calling to be a spiritual father as I grow older. And that's something I'm trying to embrace, right? That I'm not always going to be young and trying to embrace that role. And there is a great difference between the two. And I believe that that difference is pronounced even more in this digital age. And the reason why I say that is at the push of a button, you can hear the best speakers and the best preachers to your heart's delight, right? Any speaker you want from anywhere in the world, right, they are available to you. But none of them can be a spiritual father or mother to you. None. Zero. They are simply a part of the constellation of guides and tutors that you have for your spiritual walk. And that isn't a bad thing, right? We're all blessed to have such good teaching at our disposal. That's a, that's a wonderful thing. But we need to remember that these are not your pastors, they're not your spiritual leaders, and they're certainly not your spiritual fathers and mothers. They are not, right? They were never intended to be. And at the heart, a good spiritual leader has to have an attitude of love, even as they're admonishing, correcting, and urging you to live a life that is worthy of the gospel personally, right? In person, in relationship. And you'll notice that Paul says, I admonish you as my beloved children. And you know, as wonderful as, say, a Tim Keller might be, he cannot be considered your spiritual leader because he does not know you, and therefore he does not love you, right? That's the bottom line. I love Tim Keller, right? He's a wonderful guide. He's a wonderful teacher for me. I listen to all his messages, read all his books, but I also realize the limitations. He's not my pastor, right? That's someone I have within uh, AMI, the family of churches. And the thing is, wherever the Apostle Paul went, he developed these incredibly loving, personal relationships. Consider these words to the church at Philippi. For God is my witness, how I yearn for you with all the affection of Christ Jesus. Meaning there is a deep, deep attachment. There's deep relationship there. And this is such a strong statement that Paul has to swear by God as his witness. And you want to find a spiritual leader whose attitude towards you and the church at least is getting to this place. Maybe it's not there, but they at least acknowledge that this is the standard by which good Christian leaders are measured by and who then desire to grow into that 
by the grace of God. There is no perfect leader, right? Just as there is no perfect congregation or perfect church. But we ought to acknowledge what the standard is and try to attain it, amen? Right? That's the standard that we've been given. And I think there are too many leaders today who love power, who love fame, who love selling and writing books more than they love their congregation. And that is to our shame, is it not? Right? It is absolutely the shame of the church today. And so this leads us to the right aptitude that our spiritual leaders should possess. And you know what the Bay Area I know is all about metrics, isn't it? Right? All about numbers, measurements. And so how do we measure the aptitude of a spiritual leader in our day and age? Is it the number of Instagram followers? Is it the amount of best-selling books, maybe views on YouTube, or even the power of the sermons? Now, don't get me wrong. These are nothing wrong with these measurements per se. But is this what makes a good spiritual leader? Is this the biblical definition and the standard of what makes leadership? I wonder how Paul would measure up in our modern world. Because this is what is said of him, maybe on the Facebook of his time, 2 Corinthians 10.10. For they say, his letters are weighty and strong, but his bodily presence is weak. (laughs) And his sermons, his speech, produces nothing. They have no account. Crazy, right? I think if Paul were alive today, he would be easily dismissed. No account. There's nothing we can get from him. He has no Instagram followers, right? He's got 10 views on YouTube. You know, he has no say whatsoever. Yet, his letters have stood the test of time, haven't they? They're in the scriptures for us. Paul, the thing that made him and what the right aptitude that we need to look at is that Paul was able to say without hesitation, be imitators of me, as I follow the example of Christ. Know and measure my life. Not how many people are following me on Instagram, because they don't know my life, right? Not how many people who are reading my books, right? Because they don't give the full picture. But he says, follow my way, as I follow the way of Christ. And, and you notice that Paul doesn't send Timothy, his spiritual son, just simply to share a teaching to the Corinthians, But more specifically, he asked Timothy, remind them of the way I live. Remind them of the way I live in Christ. And that's the right aptitude that you're looking for in your leaders. Do their lives match up to the ways of Christ? You know, there are so many temptations that leaders go through. I'll be the first one to admit to you, there are so many temptations that leaders go through. And as congregations... And as members of the body of Christ, oftentimes we measure them in all the wrong way. We measure success, spiritual success, in all the wrong way. And Jesus teaches us a different way. Amen? Right? He teaches us a completely different way. Matthew 4, 5 through 6, right? we'll see how Jesus models leadership. Then the devil took him, meaning Jesus, to the holy city, set him on the pinnacle of the temple, and said to him, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down. For it is written, he will command his angels concerning you. And on their hands, they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. Right? And um, let me give you a, a picture of what this scenario is. The temple, right? the, Satan takes Jesus to the temple. Uh, and you know, this is where 
Hundreds of thousands of people would come annually to give their sacrifices. This is the center of religious um, worship in, in all of Israel. And it's as if Satan was saying, there's a thriving religious system in this place already. There's something good going on here, right? And, you know, this whole God thing, it's making money hand over fist, right? And it's more popular than ever before. And Satan was saying, well, Jesus, you can be at the center of all this, right? You can be, you can take all of this if you just sell out and you become part of the show, right? If you just become part of all this. And think about this. Could you imagine the attendance if a pastor jumped off the Salesforce building and the angels of God came underneath him and lifted him up, right? Yo, I would leave AMI for that pastor. <laughs> I'm all, wow, you know, that, that man, right? He must have some, you know, some faith, right? He, God surely must be with him. But what's the problem? The problem is that the throngs of people that will come to the church will come for all the wrong reasons. All the wrong reasons. They will be there for the spectacular show, maybe the impressive charisma, the faith of that one pastor. And, you know, there's nothing wrong with good, strong Christian leaders, but it becomes problematic when pastors become superstars who are more concerned with building their own little kingdom rather than the kingdom of God. That's the bottom line, right? There are a lot of kingdom, self-kingdom builders in our world. And, again, that line gets blurred all the time, and it doesn't help that religion equals big, big money. There are books to sell, albums to release, speaking engagements, concerts to pack out. And so when Jesus says, how dare you turn my father's house into a marketplace, I think much of the Western church is guilty as charged. We're guilty, right? And we're all part of that system. And we've turned religion into a business, and we're reaping, and we have been reaping the consequence of that. And, you know, for years, critics of American Christianity have been warning us about the consumer mentality of our churches, Everyone wants to be the newest, trendiest church that has a pastor. I've got a picture of the perfect pastor here, right? Brains of Tim Keller and the body. I don't, I don't think you can recognize the body. The body of Steve Furtick, right? You know, that's who we're looking for, right? And maybe not just the body, but the popularity, right? The influence of a, a Steve Furtick. And these critics warned us with statements like, what you win them with is what you win them to. And the medium becomes the message. And so if our services, and I love Tim Keller, as I said, but this is who I would envision as a perfect pastor for our day. If our services seem like entertainment, it will produce the same level of life change as a good movie or a decent book. You know, I had a friend in college who would tell me after a good movie or a documentary, he would say, hey, yo, man, that changed my life. And after a while, it was hard to believe him because I saw no visible transformation whatsoever in his life. You know, I think sometimes church can feel like that. A lot of people saying that their lives are changed, but there is no proof of it, right? And our lives don't change by inspiration, right, or good words. It's changed by the power of the Holy Spirit. Can a pastor usher in the spirit of the Lord? Because that's what's going to change you, right? The word empowered by the spirit is what changes the human heart. Not good hype, 
right? Not, you know, good inspiration. And the real problem, and there's many problems with the celebrity phenomena here in the United States. The real problem with the phenomena of celebrity pastors is it can lead to the abuse of power in the church, right? That's the bottom line. And actually, sadly, we're all part of that culture, right? We're all saying, you know what? There's so much abuse in the church. But who creates the system, right? Who lifts these men and women up with so much unchecked and unaccounted power? It's actually us, right? It is us. It's us as the congregations and people who are following them that allow these things to happen. And so we need to take account of that. And this brings us to our final point, which is, you know, what is then the right use of spiritual authority? And at first glance, the things that Paul says seems like the beginnings of the abuse of power, right? Should I come with a rod, right, or with love? And I think we know what Paul prefers, right? With love, with gentleness. And by rod, he's meaning, you know, more tough teaching. And, you know, these words are largely directed at a small subset of the church who are questioning Paul's authority as an apostle. And they were beginning to impact the rest of the congregation to turn against his teaching, largely out of their own pride. And in this instance, Paul was in the right, even though many in the church were against him, right? In the church, majority doesn't rule, okay? This is not a democracy. When a congregation is in the wrong, an apostle, spiritual leader, has the right to say, biblically, I feel like I'm in the right. And that was what was happening here. And it was necessary for him to exercise his authority as a spiritual father over the church at, at Corinth. But clearly, right, what we see in this example is that having no lines of authority is not the answer. But at the same time, we are all wary of the abuse of authority, the corruption of power, right? We should be, because that does happen. And, and given all the scandals that we've heard in the churches, the lack of ethics as well in our government leaders, even the admission scandal right over the past few years in our universities, it's no wonder that we don't trust institutional authority. And I saw a recent uh, Barna survey. Uh, I was surprised, actually. 36 people still trust the church. Right? I thought it would be much, much lower. But 36 people still in, uh, you know, believe that the church has best, their best interest at heart. Uh, that number drops to 16% for academic institutions. And not surprisingly, it plummets to 6% for the government, right? It goes all the way down to single digits. And I was thinking, at least the church is winning, right? <laughs> you know, in a certain sense. But, you know, what it largely means is that we're a very untrusting society. We don't trust very many institutional lines of authority. And because of that, people are essentially left to invent their own versions of power, of rule what it means to submit. And I think that is what has indirectly led to this unprecedented rise of tribalism, division within our nation. And along with that, sadly, along with that decrease in distrust is the rejection of God as the ultimate authority in life. That's, I think, the saddest part. And in that context, it is incredibly difficult 
for pastors, spiritual leaders to exercise gentle, loving, spiritual authority because no one listens, right? No one cares. Every, everyone is really on their own. And I realize, you know, that in this age of the Internet, right, we do feel like we know more and are more informed than previous generations. And in general, this may be true, but it does come with this great pitfall because the more knowledge a person has, the more we have feelings of superiority and the increased likelihood that we will reject legitimate claims to authority, actually. And that was what's happening here in Corinthians, in the Church of Corinth. Very knowledgeable group, actually. They had a lot of knowledge. They thought they knew the wisdom, right? But it was the wisdom of the world. But because there was this wealth of knowledge that these individuals had, they felt it right to reject the authority of Paul, right? And it's important, right, that uh, that knowledge does not puff us up, especially in a place like the Bay Area where we do have, you know, very, very intelligent people. Wealth of knowledge, right, is right at our fingertips. But, but we have to submit ourselves to rightful spiritual authority. And so... That leads us to a very important question. How can you tell when a spiritual leader has a healthy relationship with power, right? How do we know so that we can rightfully submit? And obviously, if a spiritual leader has the right relationship, then it's much easier to sit under their authority. And first is when he or she is willing to give it away and share it appropriately. And I think that's the interesting thing about power. It's not a limited resource. Authority is not a limited resource. The more you share, the more there is. And that's exactly what Jesus did, didn't he? Right? Even at the end of Matthew, he says, I give you authority. The authority that's been given to me, I now give it to you. He also sends uh, his disciples two by two. And he says, I give you authority. I give you the same authority that I have. And a good leader who has a right relationship with power understands that. There's plenty to go around, right? Because my power is not my own. It comes from an unlimited source. And the more I give out, the more there is. And so appropriate amounts, obviously, to the right people. But they're not afraid to share it. And so that's one. Second is when power is used to build people up and not tear them down to build them up, to encourage spiritual growth. Andy Crouch, uh, who's a great American modern thinker, he writes about the fact that power at its best is resurrection to life, to full humanity. Power at its worst is the unmaker of humanity, and it breeds inhumanity in the hearts of those who wield power. It's one of two things, right? Can you use your power to actually increase life, increase humanity? Or does our hunger for power corrupt? Does it dehumanize? Does it bring people low? And though we don't see it in Corinthians as readily, it's very apparent that Paul had a very healthy view of spiritual authority and a healthy relationship with it, as we read in Philippians. It says this, 
I have thought it necessary to send to you Epaphrodites, my brother and fellow worker and fellow soldier and your messenger and minister to my need. For he has been longing for you and has been distressed because you heard that he was ill. And I am more eager to send him, therefore, that you may rejoice at seeing him again and that I may be less anxious. So receive him in the Lord with all joy and honor such men, for he nearly died for the work of Christ, risking his life to complete what was lacking in your service to me. I believe one of the most tangible signs that someone has a healthy relationship with power is their openness to receive help and to admit their vulnerabilities. Paul never considered himself to be above the need for help. His ministry was never unidirectional, meaning one way, I help you, but I, I don't need help from you, right? It was always, I sow into you, but you also sow into me. I pray for you, but you also need to pray for me. And, and what we see here is this help isn't just financial or a prayer, but it actually comes personally in the figure of Epaphrodites. And Epaphrodites is an unknown figure for the large part in the church, but he is actually a lay leader, right? He's not a super apostle, right? He's, he's, he's not someone who stands above Paul, right? He's not another pastor. He's a lay leader like many of you here in this room, raised in the church, Probably a local convert who matured became and became a beloved representative of the church. And of all the people that Paul mentions in his letters, there is no one that seems to get the same type of love and honor and attention as this man does for all the obvious reasons. Just as Paul risked his life to minister to the believers in the Philippian church, what we see is Epaphroditus, he returns that love by risking his life to minister to his friend, to his pastor, in his great time of need. In jail, and obviously needing some care, the Philippian church sends one of their own to take care of Paul. And in a time when travel was dangerous, bad for your health, it seems that Epaphroditus got deathly sick, almost to the point of dying himself, just so that he could go and serve Paul in prison. And, you know, it's remarkable when you see this type of love in the early church, the type of love that the Christians shared with one another. And though they were spread throughout the Middle East and Europe and probably only saw each other maybe a week or two, a couple months, every few years, they loved each other deeply. And they were willing to pay the highest price to serve one another. There was a depth to the church when it began, and I believe the church today needs to find that again. Amen. We need to uncover that well again and drink deep from the love that these men and women shared. And for these reasons, Paul describes his relationship with Epaphrodites in five terms that I believe defines healthy, mature Christian relationships in the church. It can't always remain father and children. We see it maturing. And Paul says of Epaphrodites, he is my brother, right? He is a dear brother to me. Second, he says, this is my co-worker in Christ. We labor together side by side. 
We're also fellow soldiers. We go into war, spiritual battle together. Fourth, he's a messenger. Just as I was a messenger to him, he now is a messenger to me of the good news of Christ. And fifth, he's a minister, right? He's one who cares for me just as I have cared for him. That's the standard that the church has been called to. And the spiritual leaders that are among you, they're leaders among equals, amen? Leaders among brothers and sisters, co-workers together, partners in the gospel. And you know, the, these statements give a window into Paul's view of ministry and important for us to follow that. And I like to say that men and women like Epaphrodites, they complete the cycle of ministry because true ministry cannot flow in one direction, as I mentioned. We are called to be what Henry Nouwen describes, wounded healers, right? None of us are perfect enough to serve one another, to minister, to care, right? None of us. Not the man on the pulpit, not the people in the pews. We all need each other's ministry, care, and love. And I say this completes the cycle of ministry because any church that can call itself mature has to be able to grow these level of believers in the house, right? And, you know, you do realize that the early church, they didn't just hire staff, right? I mean, I don't mind hiring staff. We just hired a staff now. But what I've emphasized during the pandemic to our church as I saw some unhealthy patterns was, you know what, you guys have to start ministering, right, to us. Ministry cannot just flow from staff downward. It has to come back. It has to circulate among the congregation. And I hope that this house is built on that. And, you know, how? How can we get there? Well, first we have to trust, actually. And actually, mainly, we have to trust one another. And, you know, it's been said that trust is built up more when you ask for help as opposed to when you just give help. Isn't that weird, right? That is really weird. That when someone asks for your help, that is actually more helpful for that relationship because it starts to build trust. And when I simply go in to help, actually, right, that doesn't build the relationship as strongly. And why is that the case? Well, it's because it shows vulnerability. When people give the illusion that they are invulnerable, that everything is perfect in their lives, that is an immediate obstacle to trust. And my fear is that many leaders that stand up on the pulpit, they show themselves to be that invulnerable fortress, right? I have no problems. It's all of you that have the problems, right? And I need to minister downward to you. And that is a block and a hurdle to real relationships in that church. It has to go from the top down. Vulnerability has to show from the very top. And in contrast, those who show their weaknesses allow those around them to put down their guard and interact more honestly. If you think about it, even Jesus did that well. The very Son of God asked his disciples for prayer and openly wept before them. Right? That's crazy, right? the perfect son of God, with all the angels around him, he wept 
showed his vulnerability. And Henry Cloud points out that in God's design of man, he created tears to come out of our eyes so that we could look into each other's eyes and be drawn into deeper, more trusting relationships. Right? That somehow that creates that bond. No other animal cries, actually, but humans. Right? There's something about that eye-to-eye connection with tears right? that, that bring that trust. Madeline Engel, just to beat this point into the ground, <laughs> says, when we were children, we used to think that we were grown up we will no longer be vulnerable, but to grow up is to accept vulnerability. To be alive is to be vulnerable, right? And it is that vulnerability from your leaders down to the congregation that really builds a healthy house for the Lord. You know, just closing, um, when I was, you know, coming um, into the church and praying this morning, and, uh, you know, when I was much younger, I really wanted a big church, right? That's what, you know, young pastors want, right? I want a church of 1,000. No, I want 5,000, 10,000. Uh, never got there, right? <laughs> Still stuck at 200-something, right? Um, but somewhere in my development as a pastor, I began to acknowledge that, you know what, who am I that even 200 people would listen to me on a Sunday morning, right? with all my flaws, with all my weaknesses. Who am I, right? 200 on a Sunday, over the years, many more. And that's a blessing. But the thing is, right, when I'm up here, you don't see my vulnerabilities, right? You don't see my weaknesses. That's something that the church, our church, Radiance up in San Francisco, that's, you know, my family. Right? They see it, right? And so what I'm saying is, I can't be the father of this house, right? That's not possible, because you don't know me that well. The father of this house is Pastor Ulysses, and the mother is Christine, right? And there are people to be honored. You know what? When I think about as pastors, it always is interesting, because this is something a guest speaker can do, right? Um, they are people of great integrity. I don't know if you know them at that level. They are, right? They're not perfect leaders by any means, and I hope they don't mind me saying that, right? They're not perfect, but they are people of integrity. And sometimes Pastor Ulysses will write me an email, right, because I'm on the provisional elder board, and he'll ask me, you know, can we change, you know, $1,000 in the budget? And I would say, why are you writing? I'm, not, I'm thinking that. Why are you writing me, brother? Right? It's a thousand bucks. It's no big deal. Right? Just do it. Right? Um, and I would not do it. Right? Maybe I don't have as much integrity. But this man does. Right? He is, you know, at a, to a fault, I would say, a man who is clearly, right, uh, and very distinctly about upholding the standards, right, of the, of the office of pastor and leader in this church. And it's wonderful to work with him, to see him grow as a pastor, as a spiritual father of this house. And I pray that you would honor men and women like that, and that together you guys would build this house. And it's the concluding point. It is when churches 
begin to develop the right attitude, the attitude of Christ, and also the right aptitude, the ways of Christ, as well as the right use of authority, the authority of Christ, that the house of God is built in the right way. And if you think about it, Christ used his authority to lay down his life for us and to pick it up again so that we might live in the power of his resurrection, right? That's what a good leader does, amen? That is what a good leader does. Why don't we pray together? Now, ask the praise Fanny and the praise team to come up. Let's pray. Now, as um, they begin to set up, can we just pray over this house? Let's pray for your pastor. Let's pray for Pastor Ulysses Christine. They've gone through a long journey by themselves, right? You know, it's, I don't know how they do it, right? A church growing and as big as this, and he's the solo pastor, and she is really the work all behind that. But let's pray that, you know, one God will bring some help for them, right? Let's also pray that the leadership of this church would also rise to support them. Right? And so let's begin there. Let's pray over this house. Let's pray together.